Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sound of Play 33. Play, we bring you an eclectic fortnightly mix of some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 33 is returning guest, composer and music writer, journalist, if you prefer, Ruben Cornell. <laughs> Hello, folks. Welcome back, Ruben. It's been a while. Yes. Number nine, I think, was the last was it? <laughs> last one I did. Yes, Goodness. I did look back, okay. but uh, I've been That's... listening to most of them as uh, as you've been putting them out. Great stuff. Thank you. Best part of a year ago now. Um, yeah, we decided to have some uh, some some uh, some of our beloved extended Cana Rince family back, um, especially now as I've slightly tweaked the format of the show. So when uh, guests such as yourself come on, you get to get you get to have five picks instead of just three, because uh, so many guests were saying three's too hard. So uh, <laughs> now you get five, and we'll be hearing uh, yeah, so five excellent selections from you and four terrific selections from the Cana Rince community post at canerince.com slash forum. So we were treated there to a rousing and luxuriant opening indeed. Uh, and that was from a JRPG of some renowned Skies of Arcadia. What made you pick that one for us? Um, well, I'm a bit of a Dreamcast fanboy. Last time I was on, I was waxing lyrical about Shemui. And um, there's going to be a couple of Dreamcast uh a couple of Dreamcast uh, tunes on this one as well, but uh, Skies of Arcadia I really loved. Didn't manage to complete it because the no. uh, one of the last <laughs> Sky Battles was completely impossible. It was hours and hours of just going around and you couldn't skip the animations um, in between the actual, mm. in between the shooting. So I didn't manage to finish it, but yeah, I really loved that track. Um, I know the composers uh, were were kind of renowned in Sega circles. They did some tracks in Knights and Panzer Dragoon and yeah. a lot of the Sonic games. So, yes. yeah, I just, I just uh, in love with that track. In fact, all the music in Skies of Arcadia is brilliant. Mm. I've got the, um, I've got the CD. So, um, 
It's a double CD uh, called yeah. Eternal Arcadia, if anybody wants to pick it up, because that was the Japanese name. And um, I highly recommend that. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those games, and I'm sure there are many. Uh, it's something we've heard recently with both the Xenoblade Chronicles and Xenoblade Chronicles X game. You know, it, these enormous epic Japanese role-playing games that people really adore, but so few few get to the the actual end of. And I know, like I started Skies of Arcadia both on the Dreamcast and the the slightly remixed uh, GameCube version, which arrived a couple of years later after the death of the the Dreamcast, and. Like I loved everything about it. I liked the setting, the characters, the art. It was, you know, it was all. It was really Sega-looking, bright, beautiful, blue skies game. Not everywhere in in the game, but you know, you you are these sky pirates and you're sailing around in these floating vessels, and it's all very appealing. But in that traditional JRPG way, um, even more so back in the year two thousand when it first came out. There are a lot of random battles in this game, and there, yeah. you you're wandering the you know the kind of the areas of the game, and it feels like you're being beset by invisible creatures almost constantly. And it uh, if you're not you know I enjoyed the combat, but sometimes you just feel like you want to make more progress than the game's letting you in a in a period. Mm. I, I I think that's what I find anyway. And I, I, I have I didn't mind the combat on foot really. It was just no, those okay. ship battles were right. in, insanely difficult and. Mm. Maybe I hadn't spec'd out my ships properly, but deeply uh, strategic, I'm sure. Yeah, but crazy. possibly quite. Yeah, probably quite um, exacting in that they, you know, it's quite quite a lot of the end game stuff in JRPGs tends to be if you if you haven't set it all up absolutely correctly, you're kind of stuffed. Yeah, um, I had that problem on Persona Five. <laughs> right, <laughs> just right. got completely stuck about halfway through, so I hadn't got the right uh, personas. No. Persona 4 I Persona see. 4 yes. yes oh yes five, Persona 5 is not even out yet is it yet Dancing All Night yeah that's on my um, list yeah uh Yes, the GameCube version, I think, toned down the frequency of the random battles somewhat, as I recall. But um, yes, I own them both. Don't own either now. They're both worth quite a lot of money. And, and uh, it's a game, you know, it's, it, I quite like games like this in terms of thinking about games to cover for the main Kane and Rince podcast because it's a one-off. There's no games either side of it. Obviously, the people involved have gone, off to, gone on to make other things. Pretty sure the producer uh, is was uh, the main woman behind the Valkyria Chronicles game. I think that's right um but uh it's now quite hard and expensive to source a copy um i still have a dreamcast and a gamecube but um yeah and then and then there's just the small matter of committing 100 hours to finish it and (laughs) and making sure you don't get stuck uh 80 hours in and then have to to throw it away so my dreamcast collection must be must have been Mm. worth a fortune if i'd have held Mm. on to it now because i had all these very obscure ones yeah, there are a lot of uh, yeah quite valuable games, and the thing is, those cases were really fragile as well. They, oh, they, they had those cool, cool plastic cases that were bespoke to Dreamcast, but the little hinges used to always break <laughs> off. They seem to be made of sugar syrup. Whatever yeah. plastic they made them from was very brittle and just breakaway went glass. Away in yeah. shards. Yeah, very disappointing. Every time I, I've only got a few Dreamcast games left now because so many of the favourites, things like the Capcom fighting games, have been re-released on other systems and so on. But games like Choo Choo Rocket, which you can play on iOS and you can play on GBA, but really for me, the Dreamcast is the only way to play that game. But every time I pull it off the shelf and open it up, it's like ah, oh, the case is broken. <laughs> it's so disappointing. But um, yeah, I don't know if there's a resource out there for buying replacement cases, but I probably only break them too. So. Mm. Anyway, more Dreamcast chat later, perhaps. 
Uh, but up now we have a request from the forum. We've got quite a few in now since uh, I shouted out some weeks ago now saying that we didn't have that many requests in. We've now had quite a few, but do keep them coming because they will run out again if we keep including uh, several per podcast. So, yes, canorince.com slash forum. Look in the Sound of Play folder. Request your tracks as this uh, Bloody Initiate has. And uh, Bloody Initiate says this track is called Distorted World. And by this point in the game, the game in question is Ninja Gaiden, the 2004 Xbox original uh, reboot. That's what you're playing in. Something terrible has happened, morphing most of the population into fiends, and the fabric between realities has been sent to the cleaners. It's also the first point in the game where I felt like I was where I belonged. You play a badass super ninja in this game who doesn't hide from anybody, instead preferring to charge straight at them and slice them to bits, no matter how many rockets they have. The ascending strings and percussion match with a long stair you have to climb at this point, and as I said, it's the first time the game feels like it makes sense. So the Ninja Gaiden soundtrack and therefore presumably the Ninja Gaiden Black and Ninja Gaiden Sigma soundtrack, I don't know how much, how many changes there were made to those uh, kind of uh, souped up versions, but uh, the, the credits go to Ryo Koike and Wakanahara. Uh, I don't know who did what in the usual fashion, but let's credit them both. 
Now we have some more Dreamcast-related fun, as promised, with our guest Ruben. And this is a, a favourite game of mine, uh, Space Channel 5. Is it? Oh, what do, yes. What do you think of the second one? Uh, I've never finished the second one. Um, you never finished it. It's only about an hour long. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there you go. Maybe that tells you what I think of it. Yeah. Um, I got the... Um, I bought there's a, there was a PlayStation 2 double pack released of the first and the second games and I bought that on a Canadian import I believe. Um so I do still own it. I own both games in in the series but I never had the affection for part 2 as I did for part 1. Is is that what you're getting at or um yeah, I I got rid of all my Dreamcast stuff as I said mm, and mm. um then part two came out on the Xbox with a whole yes, it did. bunch of other things, Sonic yes. and a couple of Crazy Taxi, I think, was on there. There was a bet. That's right. A pack. It was the PC versions ported to 360. Yeah. Yeah, very disappointed I was in the, the second one. It was fun just for a playthrough once, but the music I didn't find as, as funky or as fun or mm. it just mm. had something missing. I couldn't put my finger on it, but Space Michael. Uh, which is, of course, the reason the reason why they only ever release Space Channel 5 Part 2 now on Steam and 360 and PS3 is because Michael Jackson turns up, rocks up. His relationship with Sega was still there in the uh, late 2000s, despite the fact that they'd with, withdrawn him from the Sonic 3 soundtrack, as we talked about in Sound of Play 32. But, uh, yeah, Space Channel 5 Part 2 has no Space Michael sound. Well, Oolala's still there. and um, She is. She was... She was part of that lawsuit. Um, oh, that, Lady Miss Keir. That involved Delight, yes. Yeah, that's um, right. Lady Miss Keir was approached, I think, originally by Sega to supply her her vocal talents and also her image, her yeah. image, her likeness for the game. And she said no. And uh, then they subsequently <laughs> released it anyway and yeah. and called the character Ulala and she sued them and she lost. Yeah. yeah for quite a lot of money, I think. Yeah, I suppose how much um, exactly? it's a hard thing to kind of prove. But there was a clear and obvious influence. I think even if even if you'd never known that there was there were conversations between them, anyone who was familiar with Groovers in the Heart would have recognised that uh that Ulala bore a resemblance to, yeah. to the Lady Miss Keir. Even though I mean it was ten years after, wasn't it, pretty much? Um maybe ninety one was Groovers in the Heart and nineteen ninety nine was was Space Channel Five. Yeah. But something I used to play a lot when I was DJing. I always sure. got people on the dance floor. Of course Mizuguchi must have been a fan. Um yeah. Yeah, no I guess so. I mean this particular track I've chosen it samples uh a nineteen sixties track called Mexican Flyer. Um mm. By Ken Woodman and his Piccadilly Brass, which I had sort of vaguely been aware of because some of the songs that Ken Woodman's done, uh, well, they're mostly instrumental. I think they're all instrumental, actually. And Mm. um, they're the kind of things that you hear on Radio 2, you know, tip for the top tracks of back in mm. the day in the 80s you know, these big kind of brass funky things so I thoroughly recommend nipping on YouTube and having a look at Ken Woodman and his, and his Piccadilly Brass if you're kind of into this stuff but uh, yeah the track the rights for that track were apparently bought out by Sega and then they sampled it hugely for Space Channel 5 they had Just, to do that bit legally <laughs> yeah well I, I would think so because um, they've used a kind of remixes of that track about 20 times during the yes. game yeah and um yeah just another really funky uh funky track that i love i love the whole soundtrack for that game but this one really kicks in right at the beginning of the game and sets the tone 
Spaceport introducing Ooh La La uh, by Naofumi Hataya and Kenichi Tokoi. Well, that's who the, the game soundtrack's by, but uh, credit again to the, 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 the man, the Ken, Ken and his brass, Piccadilly. Yep. <laughs> Ken Woodman. Ken Woodman. you notice that I'm steering clear of saying any of these Japanese names. That's fine. Yeah, I, I have to brave it. And uh, yeah, sometimes I, I trip over, but I do my best. I've, I've had a few coaching lessons from uh, our Jay's uh, wife, Kai, who uh, who is Japanese. So I try to use the uh, the things she's taught me to not murder them too much. <laughs> but it is difficult. Um, yeah, so uh, Space Channel 5, as we said, came out on the Dreamcast in 1999, Um Originally it arrived in Europe in 2000, and the Dreamcast was already starting to to struggle. It only lived on for another year or or year and a half or something like that. Um, but yes, you can play this game. There is a PS2. If you still have a PS2, you can still uh, play the collection if you're willing to find a copy on eBay or or somewhere, some supplier. Next up, we have another request from the forum of. Uh, I've picked another new uh, contributor. We always like to encourage people to post on the forum. So this is from someone we've not heard from before called, excellently, Son of Sniglet. Uh, and this is a track from uh, a game we have featured before, but uh, but that's fine, you know. Uh, we, we're always happy to uh, to do that. There's, there's no reason why not. We're obviously going to eventually bump into things we've done before. So uh, Son of Sniglet says, this is from the recent but still incomplete adventure game, Kentucky Route Zero. The game has some really wonderful ambient and atmospheric tracks from composer Ben Babbitt, but the standout is actually from a small folk group, the Bed Quilt Ramblers, called You've Got to Walk. It's played in the game at a very pivotal moment of the opening episode and is terrifically haunting and ethereal, which is also a good way of describing Kentucky Route Zero. Hark the voice of Jesus calling. Come and work for him today. The fearless one and the harvest falling. Oh 
So that was like a, a American folk spiritual piece. You've got to walk, uh, credited to the Bed Quilt Ramblers, um, which is actually the game's composer Ben Babbitt on vocals, guitar and banjo, but uh, augmented with Emily Cross on vocals and Bob Buckstaff on double bass. Uh, and that's Cardboard Computer's ongoing Kentucky Route Zero. Um, so the, I think the first episode came out at some point in 2013, then some more came out in 2014, I don't think anything further happened in 2015 and, and this game is still, I think, two episodes away from completion, one or two. So people who've played it, I know, seem to really love this game. And it must be, you know, people who are complaining about Telltale games occasionally taking a month and a half to, <laughs> between episodes. So these people have been waiting for two years. I'm still, you know, it's on my it's on my Steam wish list, but I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to play it until until it's finished because I don't, what I don't want to do is get halfway through and then find out that the development team's, you know, disbanded or, or whatever. So, but anyway, great, great soundtrack and uh, hopefully an interesting story once it's concluded. Speaking of games that weren't really concluded. I was just about to say that. Nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Completely not deliberate. Uh, it just struck me. Um, so Kingdoms of Amalur was going to be this epic multi-game, possibly even multi-genre series, I'm not sure, or multi, multi-platform. multi uh, I didn't entirely follow it, but in the end, 38 Studios only got to make one game, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, came out early 2012, I think. Um, so did you play this game? You've picked a track from it? Yes, um, I really love this game. I'm a big, really? I'm a big fan of those um, kind of sprawling fantasy things and this just seemed to me to be the perfect kind of mashup between Fable and Dragon Age and a bit of right. Skyrim, uh, well, a bit of Elder Scrolls as was. Mm-hmm. And the combat, which I have trouble with because I'm not, a fantastic games play, I must say, although I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, the combat I of, often have trouble with in these uh, in these RPGs, but uh, this was very fluid and felt very natural. So I got about probably three quarters of the way through this game, moved house, lost it, um, ah. and didn't go back to it. And I've just rebought it again, just started playing it again. So, did you pick up where you left off, or have you restarted? Nope, I've had to restart the whole thing, um, ah, right. <laughs> which is not a bad thing, but no, um, not if you like it. Exactly. And the soundtrack for this game goes a long way towards me enjoying it. Mm. Um, it's by Grant Kirkhope, a new upstart in the. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've never featured him before. We've never ever featured him. Um, he's fantastic obviously lots of good stuff with rare back in the day and uh this is a more or less a whole orchestral soundtrack from him which is not that common um in terms of his kind of discography he's uh he's well known for doing you know very melodic kind of songs um mm. with very strong sort of repetitive motifs but the piece i've chosen from Kingdoms of Amalo, it's it's a mostly a string piece. There are a few little woodwinds and harps, but it's mostly just string chords and it accompanies a section in the game that I really loved. Um I actually got a chance to quickly fire off a question to Grant on Twitter just before 
we recorded this. Oh, excellent. And he said um, this is his favourite area of the game. And in a lot of the pieces, he just used major chords and he wanted a Vaughan Williams feel. And I completely agree with that. It sounds very Vaughan Williams.
So the plains of Erethel. Uh, so now you're playing through the game again. Mm. Uh, is it is it hurting you a bit that you know it's kind of, it's probably almost certainly now going to be a one off, never to be repeated, not to be followed up um, experience? It may even end on a cliffhanger of some sort. I'm not I, sure. I don't to be know. Honest. I've purposefully kept away from uh, any spoilers or kind of walkthroughs or really any information about it because I really wanted to just experience it all the way through and however it ends so be it um so don't tell me anything about it please <laughs> I, I don't know um i have it on playstation plus as i'm as i'm sure a number of our listeners will who've been subscribed to ps plus for a few years mm. they gave it away as a freebie some time ago um so it's there on my download list should i ever you know fancy it but but i think that the fact that it's it, i think it almost would have served it better if they'd never announced that it was going to be this kind of multi-game saga because I think it, it actually puts people off now trying it out because they know yeah, that the studio is disbanded afterwards. I mean, I think it's really underappreciated. Um, I definitely urge everybody who's into kind of fancy sprawling RPGs to give it a go. It's a bit more cartoony than maybe some people would like, but uh, for me, I think it's a really great game. Cool. A game we have covered uh, before and uh, we've also featured some music from is uh, well the series really Metal Gear Solid series um, but I liked this slightly left field pick uh, from another new contributor and song requester from the forum someone known as Crandosource and uh, the, this is the uh, this, the track from uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater called Old Metal Gear, which Crandosaurus describes as a pretty awesome 60s-ish surf guitar version of the Metal Gear Solid theme. I can't imagine anyone disliking it, he says. Well, let's see. <laughs> Thank you. 
So the Metal Gear Solid theme was originally it was credited to Tappy Iwasi, uh, one of the uh, names from the Konami uh, in-house audio people, sometimes known as uh, Konami Kukeha Club, I believe. But sometime uh, a few years down the line, somebody spotted that there was a piece by the Russian composer Georgi Sviridov. Uh, we talked about this before, which is almost identical to the Metal Gear Solid theme. Um, Hideo Kojima seemed rather embarrassed when this was pointed out to him. Uh, I don't know what happened as regards to Tapi Awasi. Um, but I've noticed this version of the track uh, on the internet has been credited to some Sergei Mantis and also to Starry K. Now, I don't know if those are in-game jokes where, because I believe this um, this song appears on the on an in-game radio somewhere, because obviously this game's set in the, uh, in the 70s, Cold War times. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know who to credit that track to, but it's the Metal Gear Solid theme from uh, Snake Eater. As we've said before on this podcast, we covered uh, all the way from Metal Gear on the MSX2 all the way up to Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots, and Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater, and Subsistence, of course, fell in issue 39 of the Cane and Rinse podcast, so check it out. And before we hear from our guest Ruben Cornell's next pick, which is a tremendously, um, well, unexpected pick, I think I don't ex- think I was ever expecting us to feature this particular game uh, on either Sound of Play or uh, certainly the main Cane and Rinse podcast, or that may have been put on the list. But we'll come back to that. I just wanted to ask uh, Ruben, how have you been? What have you been up to? Didn't you go to India? I did, yes. Um, I had a fantastic time over there. My stomach didn't have such an amazing time. No, but, I, uh, I hear that's I an did. issue. <laughs> right. How long were you there for? Um, about two and a half weeks in nice. all in all, sort of on the way to Dubai and back again. And uh, I had the opportunity to see some amazing sights. We went to see a Bollywood film in a huge cinema in one of the right. big cities. And that was insane. You know, mm. the, the music and everybody sort of like, seat dancing along with it is it sort of um, interactive is it yeah it's not meant to be but uh, right. uh the indian guys uh yeah they really love it every time there's a a show of a little bit of you know the leading yeah. actress's ankle or something they all go yeah. absolutely wild and uh they're all dancing <laughs> along with the music so it was really good fun um a very memorable trip, I have to say. Excellent. Pure pleasure, was it? Just a holiday? Yep. Yeah, just a holiday. Um, we went to Bali uh, at the beginning of the year as well. So been yeah, been around this year. Been Exotic trying to fit travels. some work in around it, but uh, mm. largely yeah. <laughs> largely a lot of travelling. Any any influences, do you think, coming from your travels to the, uh, the exotic east? I don't know. I very rarely get to write that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I have done the odd... Um, Bollywood track and certainly for the uh, not the last series of America's Next Top Model but the season previously they had a trip um, to Bali for um, I think it was about three or four episodes of the series so Mm. the producers wanted sort of Indonesian hip hop. If there's, I didn't even know if there was such a thing Mm. Um, but certainly that's something they requested so I had to do kind of a mashup of those two styles um for about five or six tracks which were featured in the show and um Ooh. yeah they seemed to like them i really didn't have much of a clue about uh balinese gamelan music but uh no. <laughs> i did by the end of that thank god for well, youtube 
<laughs> yes, everybody's tool yes. these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any other projects you've been working on that you're allowed to tell us about, shows or films or whatever? Um, actually, I've, well, branched out from my sort of regular day job of of writing about music and writing music for for TV and things. Uh, I'm setting up a... Uh, a YouTube podcast, well, a YouTube video show and podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which will accompany it, which is going to be called uh, The Samplecast. Mm-hmm. So it's at uh, www.thesamplecast.com. And it's intended as an outlet for composers and producers and developers and any kind of fans of sample libraries. So the kind of tools that composers use on a day-to-day basis. And I'm going to be doing reviews and promotions, tips and tricks, that sort of thing. Rather ambitiously set it as a weekly show. Mm-hmm. So this, <laughs> you can tell me if it's I'm... Right, it's not time consuming at all. And uh... then, well, yes, we, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But um it's something I've been thinking about for a really long time and there have been about 40 or 50 sample library developers, big companies that produce this kind of software and these kind of musical tools. And I've had relationships with them for quite some time through the magazines that I write for and that sort of thing. So I've been inquiring with them, you know, do I th- do we think this is a good idea and would you support it? And unanimously everybody mm. said, yes, great, do it. Yeah. So I don't have any choice now, I've got to do it. Um, yeah. And it's the sort of thing which I think will be useful for very niche market of people that make music and people that buy these kind of products. But, you know, there's more and more people out there writing music and trying to get their foot in the door. And sure. I think this could be a really useful tool for them. So... Yeah, look out for that. It should be launching in February, February 2016. Excellent. I'm sure some of our listeners would definitely be interested um, in that. And uh, yeah, I actually, for what it's worth, uh, I think setting yourself a relatively challenging schedule is probably a good thing. And and I think just, you know, not not that, you know, we've got rich and famous out of this or anything, but... Um, in terms of gaining traction, having a regular release schedule, I think, is vital. So many podcasts and things like that are kind of sporadic. And I'm sure there's plenty of examples of really successful ones, but it's much easier for people to drift away if you're mm-hmm. not putting out content as and when you've said you're going to. So um, I think it's worth doing. But obviously, having said that, you don't want to drive yourself insane. So if you find that weekly is too much, you can always... You can always pull back a bit from uh, from that. I'm hoping there'll be a sort of consistent format that I'm able to yeah. um, stick to more or less every week. But yeah, as you say, um, if your listeners are into that kind of thing or making music themselves, definitely check it out. And I will be featuring users' content on there as well. So there'll be users' uh, tunes on the podcast and I'll be talking about various composers and and people that have done good work in that field on the uh, on the video show as well so um yeah get in Excellent. touch could be quite a way of you know a good thing on your cv saying that my my piece was featured alongside you know something else you've got from somebody who's well well known and well established or something like true. that true yeah it's true i'm hoping to have some quite a high profile um, interviews on there so let's see mm. excellent now, a complete change of tack with this. As I say, uh, I was not expecting to see this when I asked you for your five uh, picks, but absolutely, why not? You know, we we totally, uh, we are completely open and agnostic when it comes to computer games. I remember this one existing, um, but the reviews were pretty 
poor for it, to be honest. The, the game Viz, the computer game. Now, this probably won't mean much to anyone outside of the UK, Britain. Um, Viz is an adult comic if you don't know, um, back in the... It started in the early mid-'80s, I think, um, and started as a kind of bedroom project. Became absolutely massive um, by the end of the 80s, early 90s, was selling... Um, outselling the Radio Times, which was traditionally like the biggest selling magazine in the country. And so, of course, back in the day, Virgin Interactive uh, decided to uh, sign up the license and make a tie-in computer game. And this track is from uh, the C64, Commodore 64 version, of course, um, and it's by uh, the amazing uh, Jerome Tell. So what made you pick this one? Well, I was always a big fan of... Uh viz comic now i was born in 77 so i was a little bit too young to be reading yeah, it and certainly yeah. something i used to hide away from my parents <laughs> um not even sure can't remember how, even how i managed to get hold of it but probably through a, a friends who are older or something like that and um when i heard there was a game coming out i was actually really excited you know a computer game with a bit of swearing and a bit of nudity and a bit of profanity i thought that's yeah. excellent right down my alley mm. so to speak so um i got it and it was absolutely impossible to play it was bas- basically <laughs> a racing game where you take control of three of the popular viz characters um oh, yeah. bacon johnny fartpants and buster gonad with the mm. unfeasibly large testicles that's right and uh it's just a a three-way racing game that's uh, com- yeah just impossible to even get off the first level as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I did have a action replay cartridge and put in the infinite lives cheat, but that didn't really make any difference because uh, you would always be falling down these holes or bang into trees and then uh, you would just respawn exactly where you fell down the hole or banged into the tree. So everybody would race past you and it was impossible to complete. But uh, I have since seen somebody play through it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. There's always someone. There's always somebody. And um, actually the music in the later levels is, is really good and the gameplay yeah. looks quite fun and the humour's pretty funny for, for back in the day. And um, it was one of those games that I always felt, you know, I had to hide away, felt a bit guilty about playing it, but it didn't really matter because it was quite tame. You look, you look oh, back yes. on it now and it's a bit pathetic, but uh, obviously amazing, um, amazing music by a, a stellar artist that's known for much bigger and better games than this. But this particular track, which is pretty much ripped off of a few different uh, kind of children's nursery rhymes and things I can mm. gather, um, love it, and I think it makes really good use of that Commodore sixty four SID chip, and it's very bouncy, and it it springs to mind every couple of months. I've no idea why. Yeah, it's in, extraordinarily catchy. It is an earworm and a half.
guess uh, looking at the YouTube clip uh, that you linked us to, uh, I, there's actually some comments from Juro and Tell himself down there, and he says, it's a sort of cover of Nelly the Elephant. Uh, I found it appropriate to use for this game at the time. Um, and, yeah, rather than focusing on some of Viz's darker and more political, uh, satirical elements, uh, the game squarely plumped for the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the schoolboy uh, toilet humour and, and, and whatever angle. So, uh, presumably, if you never got past the uh, the opening level, you never got to play the uh, blow-up-a-balloon-with-your-farts uh, mini game. You could play those games because depending on, I think they were randomised. Um, oh, okay. So you had it would choose which one, uh, and it was torturous on tape as well. I remember because every oh, mini game, right? <laughs> yeah, every mini game and every stage was a separate yeah. load off of the tape. So yeah, I, a... I did persevere with it though. I tried. I'm sure it was well worth it. Uh, yes, consigned to the uh, to the bin of uh, computer game curios from from the uh, from the early nineties. It's one of my few Commodore sixty four games that I actually kept. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what that says about me. It's a collector's piece with a great soundtrack. Our penultimate track is something very different from something very different. Uh, another new contributor. This is Hornash, uh, who would like to request the opening theme for Legend of Mana on the PS1. Secret of Mana on the SNES, says Hornash, is still my favourite game of all time. And when I found out there was a game set in the same world, I tracked down a US copy on eBay. I never regretted it. I don't think the game was well received and held up against Final Fantasy VII, you can see why, but I still consider Legend of Mana my favourite game on the system. The hand-painted backgrounds and variety in combat, as well as the ability to have different pet monsters follow you around, really gave the game a real depth, and all the different stories inside still hold up today. But the music is really something else. A full orchestra was used, and it's the first and only game soundtrack I've ever bought with the opening theme is the real standout. I have no idea what the lyrics mean, but I still think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of game music written and will always put a smile on my face when it comes up on the random song list on my iPod. The original is over seven minutes long, but this is the short version.
that's simply known as opening theme song. I don't know if it had a name, uh, but the composer is the amazing Yoko Shimomura, uh, a woman uh, who we've uh, featured a number of times with an incredible CV, probably best known for composing the vast majority of the original uh, tracks on the first Street Fighter II game, not Street Fighter 1, um, but also uh, has worked on things like the Mario and Luigi RPGs, um, Parasite Eve, and oh goodness knows, L- look her up, she's uh, she's amazing and she's been around for a very long time. Uh, yeah, and that was from one of the many sort of spin-off mana games, uh, that none of which have ever been received with quite the same adulation as uh, Secret of Mana or Seiken Densetsu 2, to give it its original name. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm sure when uh, Yoko Shimomura was working on the game, she didn't know that the game was going to be um, greeted any less with any less joy than any, you know anything else she'd worked on. So she poured her heart and soul into it, as you can tell. As we've just heard, uh, remember, please venture over to our forum, kenarince.com, and you can request your favourites or other oddities and curios, but not licensed tracks, please, although we have made the odd exception for certain things, but generally not licensed tracks like, you know, your favourite tune out of Guitar Hero or something like that. But we'll continue to include a selection of uh, your picks in the playlist for each uh, regular Sound of Play. Please subscribe to the podcast, Sound of Play, and uh, our other podcast as well, Kane and Rince. You can leave a review as well. Um, if you get it from iTunes or, or one of the other platforms we're available on, like Stitcher Radio, uh, leave us a review or a rating or whatever's appropriate. So uh, before you tell us about your final pick, which is just a short, uh, short piece, uh, and we'll game over our podcast nicely... Um, anything you would like to plug? Uh, you've already given the web address. Let's say that one again. Uh, samplecast.com? Thesamplecast.com. Thesamplecast.com. Yep. Um, you can follow me personally. I'm at Rutunes, R-E-U-T-U-N-E-S on Twitter. Um, and my own website is uh, Um that should be enough to be going on with, I think. You're available for hire for writing and composing, right? I'm available for writing <laughs> and composing if this new podcast venture doesn't chew up my entire life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, it's been terrific to have you back on. Now, um, this Thank one, you. this one is uh, yes, it's a game over piece. Uh, we're, we're again, we're back in the uh, the very early '90s here. Um, the sequel to the game that sold many Amigas, so uh, Reflections, Reflections, Shadow of the Beast. Um, got a couple of sequels, neither of which I played because as technically astonishing as Shadow of the Beast was, uh, it was a pretty pretty unpleasant game to actually play as far as I can recall. I think the sequels probably um, improved things based on their reviews, but um, but I was, I was, I'd been quite put off. However, they remained technical tour de forces. Um, and where Dave Whittaker, uh, a fairly legendary composer in himself, did the music for the original Shadow of the Beast, this time on Shadow of the Beast 2, it was taken over by somebody called Tim Wright, who's probably better known as Cold Storage. He's amazing. Um, I didn't know too much about the actual soundtrack for Shadow of the Beast 2 um, before I started looking into it, Um, although it's always been a favourite game of mine. And this particular piece, the reason I chose it is the last song of this 
edition of Sound of Play is that it's probably the game over piece that I've heard the <laughs> most times <laughs> in right. my life. Still hard then, the second Shadow S- of the Beast. Impossible. Um, oh, okay. I just realised now as I'm talking that uh, all of the games that I've mentioned apart from Space Channel 5, I'm saying, oh, they're really hard. They're impossible to play. But... Uh, it's just yeah. you. No, they are. I think I think it's fair. <laughs> it is to definitely say. not just me. There was the famous ten points cheat with this that you could type in a code and get infinite lives. But the problem huh. with uh, Shadow of the Beast Two was it would drop you into puzzle rooms, and unless you had the solution of the puzzle uh, absolutely correct for the very first time, um, you would screw yourself and you'd have to start oh. the whole game over oh, again. You couldn't wow. get out of the room. Welcome to the nineties. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's the reason I've chosen this. It was because this is uh, the one piece of music, game over music, that I've heard so many times. And looking into it online, I, I found a little tidbit that uh, there's an episode of Miami Vice that borrowed the guitar riff for it. Oh, wow. Um, nice. So if you type in Shadow of the Beast 2 and Miami Vice online, you'll be able to see the clip. And it is, it's not similar. It is exactly the same. Wow. So it was uh, even good enough for the producers of that to include in... Uh, in season five of Miami Vice. But uh, for me, it's something which should always be in my head just because I've heard it about 3,000 times. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us, Ruben. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, good luck with everything. Cheers. And uh, we'll leave you with uh, Tim Wright, who, as I say, you may know as Cold Storage from the Wipeout Games, but he's done a ton of stuff. And this is just his uh, 40-second lick Uh, atmospheric lick from the end of Shadow of the Beast 2 until next time